0: Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and antelope play, where never is heard a discouraging word, and the sky is not clouded all day. A home, a home, where the deer and the antelope play, where never is heard a discouraging word, and the sky is not clouded all day. Brewster Higley, 1873 Hello. And welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 16 The Border Ruffians. If antebellum America was a body, then Kansas became a gory, open wound that would not heal until the entire man underwent surgery. According to the history books, the Civil War began at Fort Sumter, but we should recognize that for many thousands of Americans, the war began years earlier, and it all started with a railroad. As Millard Fillmore's presidency wound down to a close, enthusiasm for a transcontinental railroad began heating up. And for good reason. With California still a draw even after the gold rush ended, there was increasing interest in organizing the vast territory won by President Polk from both Mexico and Britain, and spanning it with a fast rail service. Rail was crucial because of the great distances involved, as well as the lack of good river access over much of the region. Now It's not that there are no rivers in the west, of course, but most were of little use in accessing the vast inland space. Unlike the mighty Mississippi, they either did not adequately connect to Atlantic or Pacific markets, or they did so only after a long and difficult trek. Many of the rivers were not navigable, or were too narrow and winding for convenient shipping. Finally, the only alternative to the extremely long overland trek by horse was the difficult passage across Panama, or even sailing all the way around the far tip of South America. A rail connection was an obvious and incredibly valuable prize to reach for. However, railroads then and now often require government assistance. Acquiring the necessary land rights for hundreds or thousands of miles of track was, and still is, often impossible for a private entity. Necessarily, The urge to expand rail into the west became a hot political issue. Although dozens of towns wished to become the lodestone of western expansion, only three cities seriously competed for the honor of hosting the rail connection. At stake lay the very strong possibility of becoming the leading internal commercial entrepot of the nation, with access to all the wealth of half the continent. That was a prize worth fighting over and fight these cities, and the states nearby, did. The great competing trio were Chicago, St. Louis, and New Orleans, though of course other towns threw their own hats to the ring. But each of the three had powerful politicians and obvious economic interest in promoting their railroad. In coincidence or not, there was one northern, one southern, and one border state in the mix. To very quickly run down the matter, Chicago had the best rail connections to the east, and to New York specifically. St. Louis held the distinction as the original gateway to the west, and an excellent position on the Mississippi River. Now, both of the cities would naturally build a connection towards San Francisco Bay. New Orleans, on the other hand, held sway at the mouth of the Mississippi, and would naturally tend to build rail towards Southern California. The competition caused a political issue, specifically because there were three major groupings, and all three had reasonable plans. All three needed Congress to open up access to the Western landscape also. At the time, most of the West remained as unorganized territories, with either no government or mostly local government, and often ambiguous property rights in the mix. This fact alone entirely prevented railroads from developing. Even if it had not, however, the sheer scale and expense of the operation demanded government support in some fashion. Although not necessarily cash giveaways— No single private individual, or even the largest corporation, could complete a project of that magnitude. Now, finally, by chance, all three cities were roughly equal in national political influence. Unless some outside factor tipped the scales, it would become impossible for any one party to win the day. That is, any two could probably combine to defeat the frontrunner's ambition. And this is exactly what happened for years resulting in a stalemate situation and no westward expansion. The stalemate continued until the politics of Missouri collided with the ambition of a young Illinois senator on the rise. In Missouri, Senator David Acheson was slowly winning a political battle against Thomas Hart Benton, the very same whose daughter ran off with Fremont. Now, in response to the political things, not Fremont, Benton began moving towards organizing the land west of Missouri, what is now Kansas and Nebraska, but which at the time was simply the Nebraska Territory and very lightly settled. Now this threatened Acheson because his two major allies, slaveholders and the rail interest, would become split by the issue. The rail companies absolutely wanted to expand, but the pro-slavery faction wanted no free settlement to the West. But slavery was legally blocked out because of the Missouri Compromise, agreed to all the way back in 1820. This prevented the peculiar institution in almost all the territories, in fact. To counter this political stratagem, Acheson came up with his own alternative. Just repeal the congressional ordinance that restricted slavery in the territories. Senator Acheson personally wasn't an exceptionally powerful figure in the nation, but he did have the potential support of many Southerners in the Senate, and perhaps even the pro-slavery President Pierce. Yet even that wouldn't be enough. He needed assistance to fix his political problem. And that's where Senator Stephen Douglas came in. Douglas, though still a relatively young man, had already succeeded in making his mark on public policy. Perhaps more than any other man before or since, Douglas worked in Congress. And as it happened, he wanted something that Acheson could potentially deliver. Stephen Douglas was a lifelong Democrat, and specifically he embodied two major elements of the party which were about to become extremely important. First, he was a Midwestern man endowed with all the pride of the growing state of Illinois. Second, he was a Northern Democrat in a party that was slowly turning southward, but more on that later. When Acheson looked around, he noticed that Douglas had long dreamed of two things. Organizing the Nebraska Territory and building the first transcontinental railroad through Council Bluff, and therefore Chicago. Under President Franklin Pierce's southern-dominated administration, the New Orleans route for the railroad was being pushed forward heavily. Secretary of War Jefferson Davis more or less drove this side of the affairs, including the purchase of additional land expanding the New Mexico Territory in 1854. This treaty was negotiated by the wealthy Charleston rail magnate James Gadsden. Gadsden and Davis, among others, intended for the additional land to smooth the way for rail expansion on the southern side of the Rocky Mountains. Giving potent support from the top, it seemed at the time very likely that the southern route would go through. However, Senator Atchison recognized that this meant he actually had a very valuable card to play. If he threw his support, and therefore Missouri's support, behind Chicago's bid for the railroad instead of St. Louis it might tilt the debate decisively. This was potentially Douglas's one chance to turn the entire situation around to his advantage, and he and at Atchison came to an agreement on the matter. In January of 1854, months before the final treaty of the Gadgeton Purchase even arrived in Washington, Douglas introduced a bill to organize the territory west of Missouri and Iowa. This would become the infamous Kansas-Nebraska Act. To clarify, Senator Douglas technically only needed to organize the nebraska state territory not what is now kansas but the latter created the necessary political bargain missouri for its part would still benefit directly from the increased trade to the west and perhaps missourians felt that a chicago route wouldn't actually be all that bad for them considering that they are relatively geographically close but there was a problem as mentioned senator atchison was pro-slavery and wanted to add more slave territory Douglas came from a free state and had no particular interest in the expansion of slavery. Trying to square that circle would cause the coming firestorm of public controversy. And, well, Douglas really should have seen it coming. But as we'll see, Douglas had a very specific point of view on the slavery issue that very few others shared, and he may have wildly overestimated his ability to flank the politics of the day. Douglas put forward his Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854 in several phases, though not intentionally the law initially hoped to open Kansas and Nebraska up for settlement, with the specific proviso that they could become slave territory if the settlers there so wished. Here is where Douglas ended up on the horns of a dilemma. His attempt to find a third way via Louis Cass's concept of popular sovereignty will not go well. The bill as it stood failed to satisfy Acheson or other Southern pro-slavery Senate leaders, at least some of whose support would be necessary. As they saw it, if slaveholders never settled in the territory, then no one would ever vote to establish slavery there and Douglas had offered them nothing. I will point out here that Southern leaders inherently assumed that free men would never vote to add slavery. They were right, but of course they never gave much thought to the reason why this might be the case, or what it might mean both in Kansas or beyond. For his part, Douglas hemmed and hawed as his political allies asked for an explicit repeal of the prohibition on slavery in northern territories. He slowly came around to the notion and agreed to it. In fact, he repealed the prohibition of slavery not just in Kansas, not even in the whole of the Nebraska Territory, but all of the territories north of the 3630 line established in the Compromise of 1820. This was, kindly speaking, playing with political dynamite. Douglas frankly should have known better. The country still had hot tempers running over from the Compromise of 1850, which he himself had rammed through Congress. If anything, the furor over slavery had grown hotter still, not cooled, in the northern states. More worryingly, the Democrats had presented the Compromise of 1850 as a final settlement over the issue. But already the slave interests were demanding even more concessions. And now we come to President Pierce's involvement. Franklin Pierce perhaps was not a bad man in himself, I make no statement there, but he remained a truly weak leader and a weak president. He lacked the influence to steer events or the backbone to set his own course. Some of his cabinet advisors, including ironically enough the same Louis Cass who promoted popular sovereignty, urged him to reject the bill as stirring up dangerous political forces. However, the southern wing of the Democrats finally backed him into a corner. I mean that next literally, as the group in question more or less shoved their way into the White House on a Sunday and forced Pierce to do what they want. Of course, President Pierce could have simply refused, or even castigated their arrogance. But he did neither. Instead, the President of the United States meekly sat there and submitted, and did whatever they told him. Before we move on, it's important to consider that while this was going to end up doing immense damage to the nation... Stephen Douglas probably believed that he had just cleverly out schemed Acheson and all the rest. In fact, given that Douglas genuinely proved himself to be politically farsighted on several occasions, his surrender on the slavery issue might very possibly have been intended as no more than a tactical maneuver. Douglas had good reason to believe that the region would mostly end up being settled by anti slavery, or at least non slave holding, farmers and craftsmen and merchants. That being the case, he could, in theory, afford to concede on paper, since it would ultimately become a practical defeat for slavery. To be fair, this is precisely what did happen in practice, only with years of bloodshed in the middle leading to a massive civil war. Yet, whether or not it was unintentional, when Douglass tried to repeal the limits on slavery, he gave a good poke in the eye to every anti-slavery man in Congress, and every man, woman, or child in the free states generally. Suddenly, The slave power was making good on their threat to seek domination of American life, seizing all the West in the process, and Douglas had just become the apostle of slavery. If they could take Kansas, why not anything else? And after that, everyone with an interest in abolition or settling the land became completely uninterested in hearing Douglass' popular sovereignty ideas, seeing them as so much smoke to cover a secretly pro-slavery agenda. Douglas himself ruefully remarked that he could have navigated from Boston, to Chicago, at night, by the light of his burning effigies. Now, for their part, many anti-slavery men had disdained the previous Missouri Compromise, which kept slavery out of the territories north of the 3630 line, on the grounds that it protected slavery in any and all territories south. But they were beyond livid when they saw this law was being repealed in order to potentially spread slavery still further. Arguably, hypocrisy lay in this, but also genuine moral outrage. Additionally, they had to swallow their pride to vote for the Compromise in 1850, and many Southerners had threatened secession then to get their way. If that compromise, however, was not final, then it was not going to happen again. As anti-slavery forces gathered strength, pro-slavery groups reacted by falling into lockstep behind a bill many of them had no real interest in, or might even have opposed due to backing a different rail route. A group of powerful Democratic senators rallied on behalf of the bill, including Atchison and Douglas, and also with the support of Secretary of War Jefferson Davis. The weak and pliable President Pierce burnt his limited political capital to basically force the law through, even to the point of publicly demanding Northern Democrats support it. The consequences for the party and the nation would be terrible, though papered over for a time. In fact, several observers thought the Kansas-Nebraska bill dead on arrival. It took all of the political force mustered just to bring it to a vote. Now, the united stance of the Democratic Party's leadership, marshaled by Southern congressmen and chained to it by the president, ensured the Kansas-Nebraska Act would pass, but not without a firestorm of criticism and setting off a fear among every conceivable opponent. With the kind of opportunity for hell-raising speech-making that rarely comes around, even in an era defined by particularly fiery and skilled rhetoric, opposition congressmen denounced the act in national debate, and it attracted a great deal of notice. Among its many opponents were our old friends, Salmon P. Chase, and even Sam Houston. Houston, though a Democrat, showed an independent streak that never endeared him to the power figures in the party. Now, in part, he fundamentally had similar political ideals to Henry Clay. As a slaveholder, yes, but with a national viewpoint and an eye to the changing future. Houston's stance would not waver, even to the beginnings of the Civil War itself. Also leading the resistance were Charles Sumner and William Seward, both of whom were fast becoming the leading openly free-soil politicians, regardless of their past party affiliation. Alexander Stevens of Georgia, a former Whig and just about ready to join the Democrats, led the effort to drum up votes. He applied, in his own words, whip and spur to get them in, a slightly awkward phrasing for a pro-slavery edict. It worked, however, and the Democrats managed to pass their bill, then signed into law on the 30th of May, 1854. But thinking they were winning everything, the party of Thomas Jefferson had just brought national tensions to the breaking point, and weakened the foundation of their own party in the process. In fact, the bill actually rallied the support and strength of the slowly collapsing Whig Party, despite all of the powerful men pushing it through. Northern Democrats and Southern Whigs specifically split apart on this matter, with about half of each voting for and against. This might not seem especially strange on its own, but it presaged a complete sectional split. It also suggests that purely regional interests were gaining strength against the old party alignment, although obviously this was not yet a total break. Not infrequently in politics, a group or coalition will spend all their political capital to secure an immediate victory, and then discover they had no immediate plan thereafter. This is just what happened with kansas Nebraska. The issue did not simply go away because the Democrats succeeded on one contentious political battle. Opposition to slavery in Kansas did not just cease. Having aroused the wrath of abolitionists and all those wanting to settle the land without competition from slave labor, the Kansas Nebraska Act had given that movement a clear target. It brought just about everyone in that opposition into close contact, and it would not take long for all those groups to realize they had much to gain from further cooperation. Their strength was not exhausted, they intended to keep fighting. As rising star, Senator William H. Seward, quite publicly stated, Come on then, gentlemen of the slave states. Since there is no escaping your challenge, we accept it in the name of freedom. We will engage in competition for the virgin soil of Kansas, and God give the victory to the side which is stronger in numbers as it is in right. This was by no means mere talk, although it wasn't all that much more at the moment he said it. Across the North, emigrant aid societies sprang up with the explicit approval and support of state governments to assist settlers in moving to the new territory. In turn, these would spark the next phase of a conflict already rapidly spinning out of control of the men who started it. Nobody originally intended for Kansas to become the national showdown on slavery and anti-slavery sentiment. It happened anyway. In any case, Kansas would face its first vote as an organized territory in 1854, and here we encounter the oddities of cultural conflict. Going into this vote, almost anyone sensible could see that abolition sentiment wasn't really dominant in the territory, at least not yet. The emigrant aid societies, so loudly announced and with so much support, weren't really operating since it took months to organize. Even ordinary men and women interested in farming the soil in Kansas weren't, in most cases, able to pack up, immediately jump to their feet, and rush off to settle in Kansas. Once they did arrive, settlers often encountered hostile Missourians on the road. Because of some historical settlement patterns, Missouri had relatively thin slavery on the ground, but it was very strongly concentrated along the Missouri River. There, secret societies called the Blue Lodges sprang up to thwart the presumed tidal wave of abolitionists believed to be sneaking into Kansas. Now, apart from general pro-slavery conspiring, they sometimes attacked anyone they believed was insufficiently pro-slavery. This meant that slavery in Missouri was very strong in the central portions of the state, but also extremely weak on the southern and northern third. This gave the Blue Lodges a great deal of support and power right next door to the initial region of settlement in Kansas. Now, on the Missouri side, Senator Acheson kept traveling down his chosen path. He realized almost too late that even if they had the right to do so under the law, slave owners weren't actually in any hurry to move to Kansas. Although we mentioned the northern-based emigrant aid societies, other men created similar organizations in the south and for similar reasons but the public there displayed little interest in moving to distant Kansas. The South already had a much lower population and a vastly less dense population, and it was attracting few immigrants. Those families leaving for greener pastures were already doing so, and they weren't necessarily inclined to vote for slavery either. Missourians, of course often pro-slavery, were in the process of staking claims in Kansas, However, here, too, they caused as much trouble for themselves as possible. Not uncommonly, pro-slavery Missourians would find a parcel of land they like and, in theory, left some kind of marker to claim it. But they generally returned to Missouri immediately afterwards. In the meantime, others might arrive and actually settle the land. When and if the Missourians got around to returning months later, often still with no intention of settling down in Kansas right away, land disputes not surprisingly broke out. Now, as a side note, this seems to have been a common practice among Missourians for some reason, but it was emphatically not how a proper claim generally worked in early America. And even if two neighbors mostly settled in peace, the lack of clear surveying and documented property lines could spark a furious argument. Now, after supporting settlement in the first place, Senator Acheson and the Blue Lodges saw the problem and changed tactics. Lodge leaders, including Acheson, but also Benjamin Stringfellow or Claiborne Fox Jackson, spread the word far and wide that abolition hordes would soon descend to despoil the land surrounding Missouri with hostile anti-slavery foes on three sides. They did this in order to whip up support that might not have organically existed without the demagoguery. You can probably imagine that this did not exactly lead to a harmonious future. In fact, you may have guessed that Atchison started a river of bad blood between Kansas and Missouri, and if so, you guessed right. The Lodges, and their mobs of border ruffians, began to influence elections in Kansas almost immediately. Those adhering to the Lodges seemed to more or less treat Kansas as an extension of Missouri, not a separate territory bound to become its own state. In March of 1855, in the first territorial elections, Atchison whipped up a large group of pro-slavery Missourians, somewhere between a crowd and a mob, and directed them over into Kansas to vote. If he couldn't win an election in Kansas and Kansas he would just win it in Missouri. Now, by vote, Atchison meant to functionally rig the election, and again, an election they had probably already legally won, under the threat of violence. From Atchison's own words, we will be compelled to shoot, burn, and hang, but the thing will soon be over. But there was no shooting or burning or hanging, at least not yet, though there was an awful lot of vote fraud, and it was not soon over and done with. Part of the problem was that the Missourians were disastrously oblivious about all of it. When a bunch of half drunk Missouri men showed up at the polls and basically carried on an all day party around the ballots, every real settler in Kansas knew there was a problem, even pro slavery men. Moreover, they probably gave the game away when Territorial Governor Andrew Reeder noticed that somehow more than twice as many votes got tallied than there were registered voters. And no, the population didn't triple overnight. Worse yet, quite a few actual registered voters were complaining that they hadn't been allowed to vote at all or were intimidated into staying away from the polls, which raised some rather serious questions about the results. Governor Reeder barely managed to keep his job because the Pierce administration, although obviously pro-slavery, was supine as usual and had not the will to do anything. The actions of Atchison and his supporters, however, furthered the growing divide between the Democrats' northern and southern wings. Not surprisingly, tensions in Kansas began increasing almost immediately after the questionable election. Now, the results, while obviously tainted, probably were still a halfway reasonable reflection of the beliefs of most voters in the state. But the new Kansas territorial legislature took the very provocative step of refusing to seat even the minority of anti-slavery men who were elected anyway. They began trying to control the territorial government tightly, but with a body that was rapidly losing its legitimacy through sheer population growth. It would not be long until the territory had a legislature openly hostile to, and contemptuous of, its own citizenry. How even the most fanatical pro-slavery man expected this to work out is unclear. All that being said, the immigrant aid societies began to have a real impact over the course of 1855, with more and more settlers from, sometimes, the Northeast and, especially, the Midwest arriving every day. This would begin tilting the voting population more and more against slavery. Now, soon wasn't soon enough for these people, and they began to form a kind of shadow government, headquartered in the brand new town of Lawrence. If the territorial legislature denied the right of the people to decide their own laws, again, after having declared that the justification for all this was popular sovereignty, then the people would simply create their own legislature. Now, it's no accident that free soil sentiment solidified around a town named Lawrence because it was named for the abolitionist merchant Amos Lawrence of Boston. Now, his story and the reason he ended up a prominent backer of Kansas settlers is a tale for another day, because it directly connects to our next episode on the development of abolitionism in Massachusetts. The town, of course, started small, with just a few dozen settlers, but it quickly grew, although still little more than a frontiered village. Its inhabitants were worldwide, though, and by early 1855 it boasted not one, not two, but three newspapers. Partly because of its convenient location, Lawrence ended up as the locus of free soil meetings. Over the summer of 1855, anti-slavery settlers repeatedly gathered to work out issues. There are two things to point out about all this. First, some of the settlers had not exactly displayed striking anti-slavery sentiments before arriving in Kansas. They were by no means all lifelong abolitionists. James Lane, emerging then as the most distinctive anti-slavery voice, reputedly had even tried to buy a slave himself while traveling through Missouri on his way to Kansas. But once inside Kansas, many of these people united around their opposition to interference from border ruffians and cordially hated what they were doing to the government. The second point is to note that they often displayed as much antipathy to free African Americans as to border ruffians, at least for the moment. Kansas settlers may have settled firmly into free soil politics, But they shared the same prejudices as most white americans throughout the country the free state party as they dubbed themselves would in fact vote to ban black americans from kansas entirely in december of 1855. the official territorial government meanwhile spent its limited time and energy trying to impose a hilariously draconian and wildly unconstitutional slave code at the behest of benjamin stringfellow this could never actually be enforced, and thus it undercut its own authority still further. In response to all this, the Free Soil Lawrence faction of settlers started down a path of nonviolent resistance. Instead of arming with firearms, they imported big crates filled with Bibles, helpfully provided by Henry Ward Beecher, who we have previously brought up as the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe. The Massachusetts minister and strong supporter of the emigrant aid society's Provided generously, the better to spread the word of God. Oh, sorry, I just ran across a note here. Funny story, those crates full of Bibles turned out to be crates full of guns, powder, and shot. One might complain, but abolitionists in Massachusetts had more or less accurately predicted that settlers would need to arm very rapidly, or they would become easy prey for violent pro-slavery thugs. However, although we joke, thousands of angry, armed, and sometimes frightened and often provoked people were legitimately committed to nonviolence if at all possible the free state party wanted to be left in peace and they prepared for war only to defend themselves frankly given the kind of rhetoric that men like atchison were directing their way this was not unreasonable amid this mess andrew reeder finally found himself on the outs with the pierce administration which still did not want to face up to the problems it had created in kansas Yet because Reeder had worked to ease tensions and had recognized the Free Soil Shadow government in practice, he became a hero of the anti-slavery faction in Kansas. Of course, he earned the ire of pro-slavery Southerners in the process. On top of the ideological or cultural conflicts, we really now have two overlapping governments. One official, but without popular support, and one unofficial, but with popular support. The tensions had not quite reached a boiling point, but serious trouble did not lay far in the future. The first such spark presented itself very soon. In November of 1855, a pro-slavery squatter murdered a free soiler, although the issue was again a land dispute and not about slavery. The perpetrator promptly ran off to Missouri, as he rather suspected that he would not receive a very sympathetic jury. This sparked a wave of partisans acting and reacting, with a variety of law-breaking acts that resulted in the first large-scale actions in Missouri, and arguably the first shots of the Civil War. Right or wrong, these mostly took the form of bullying and intimidation and harassment. And in reality, neither pro-slavery nor anti-slavery men could claim much of a moral high ground here. The tactics of choice included burning homesteads and terrifying housewives. But, Matters escalated when Sheriff Samuel Jones, a pro-slavery man, went to arrest an anti-slavery settler on extremely dubious charges and possibly without a legal warrant, but with definitely a large posse. For his trouble, a small but heavily armed anti-slavery band promptly confronted him and freed the prisoner. The new governor, Wilson Shannon, an inept leader unfamiliar with the Kansas situation, responded by publicly encouraging Jones to enforce the law, although historians obviously detect a rather distinct question about how lawful Jones himself was acting. Sheriff Jones proceeded to enforce the law in his own way, though probably not as Governor Shannon had hoped. Instead, Jones whipped up an army. Over a thousand men, mostly Missourians, cut off access to Lawrence on the Missouri River. In response, the men of Lawrence drilled and prepared for a siege. There were now two very angry militias engaged in intermittent standoffs, and of course it was only a matter of time until blood was spilled. And it soon did occur that pro-slavery militiamen shot and killed an anti-slavery man. This act finally prodded Governor Shannon and Senator Acheson into negotiation. The two actually visited Lawrence personally, and they did help tone down the rage. The Free State Party actually signed a written treaty, hoping to finally be left in peace. The net effect of all this was to raise the profile of the Free State faction, and give them a significant public relations victory within and outside Kansas. To some extent, they really could now claim to be the legitimate government of the territory, because Shannon had gone pretty far in recognizing their authority. Southern pro-slavery politicians saw this as rank lawlessness, but even they found it hard to explain why citizens of the United States had just faced down a mob of over 2,000 by the final numbers from a separate region. In fact, it many Southerners directed their ire at Atchison's Missouri men, which had managed to display cowardice and bullying at the same moment. However, although tensions temporarily diminished, the fact remained that twice pro-slavery men committed murder on Kansas soil. The Lawrence militiamen went back to the farms, but they remained vigilant for any further attack. At the same time, border ruffians did not stop interfering with elections in Kansas, no matter how trivial. They destroyed ballots and threatened voters, which only invited retaliation. In the coming weeks, even more anti-slavery blood would fall to earth, and yet President Pierce from Washington cursed the Free State Party in Kansas and blamed them for all the problems. Stephen Douglas echoed this sentiment with his report from the Senate, and both President and Senator merely in flame resistance. I should pause here to remind everyone that Douglas had started this nonsense by proposing self-determination on the slavery question in the territories. Yet President and Congressman alike had fallen far short of even that goal. Presented with a real demand for self-determination, they spat on it, publicly. James Lane Travel all the way to Washington to present his Free State Party's request for recognition as, well, a free state. Douglas openly sneered at the effort and questioned the legitimacy of the document, which, to be fair, had not been professionally drafted, but it did properly express the desires of the emerging majority in Kansas. Worse yet, back in Kansas, Sheriff Jones was becoming active once again. He really should have left the matter of his previous humiliation alone— But he did not. Instead, months later, in April 1856, he tried to arrest one of the men who had prevented his previous highly questionable actions. Arriving with a party in Lawrence, he was sent packing in no uncertain terms. But Jones refused to quit the idea, and he kept returning, sometimes arresting people and sometimes not. Every trip sparked more hostility and became an excuse to hunt more men next time. Jones took a bullet in the back for his trouble, but he recovered and in any event refused to give up. Sheriff Samuel Jones, having displayed conspicuous belligerence heretofore, now settled on abject madness as his best course. Woping up a mob of hundreds of pro-slavery men, largely from Missouri, he went on the offensive and surrounded Lawrence. In his eyes, the town had displayed far too much contempt for law and order, or his brand of it anyway. He presumably intended to finish what the Siege of Lawrence failed to accomplish. The men of Lawrence, this time, did not resist. They stood aside and let Jones and his mob wreck the town. But they had good reason to do so. The Free State Party had to choke their pride, to be sure. But in doing this, they won the propaganda victory of a lifetime. Jones and his band of raiders did considerable property damage. They tried to destroy the hotel and failed. They threw the presses into the river. They set fires to burn the homes of those they hated. But ultimately, only one man was killed, a pro-slavery marauder accidentally killed by some falling masonry. This event became immortalized, however, as the sack of Lawrence. Worse yet, the attack, though intended to intimidate and humiliate, ultimately had the opposite effect. For the pro-slavery side the action ultimately was no more than an impromptu demonstration of strength that failed to secure any lasting advantage. Indeed, from then on the Kansas men had just publicly shown they were not the aggressors, and implicitly had every right to defend themselves in the future. Jones had no authority for his actions, and everyone knew it, just as they knew that no towns in Missouri were under threat. The Date of the Attack May 21st of 1856 would quickly become even more important in retrospect. Just two days earlier, on May 19th, Charles Sumner issued a speech in Congress against the pro-slavery faction in Kansas and beyond. This was a remarkably inflammatory speech, in which, among other things, he accused Missourians of being "'hirelings picked from the drunken spew and vomit of an uneasy civilization in the form of men.'" Now, that was one of the nicer things he had to say, in fact. It was a fairly lengthy speech and went to some extent to lay out the Free Soil case in Kansas. It should be noted that it was filled with insulting diatribes and not a few twisted or misconstrued facts. Sumner was certainly not all wrong, but he was self-righteous and overblown to the point of unintentional comedy. On the 22nd, Representative Preston Brooks entered the Congress Hall and approached Sumner. Sumner was at this time seated at his desk. Brooks reportedly said, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Then Brooks took out a heavy gold-tipped cane and smashed Sumner in the head. Brooks hit Sumner again, and again, and again. The blows rained down on Sumner's head while he struggled to rise, only to find himself stuck between the bolted-down desk and his chair. He actually tore the desk itself free, only to stumble forward and collapse in a heap a moment later. And that will be what we discuss next episode. This will not be just the attack itself, but rather a number of events that led to radicalization and righteous fury among the abolitionists, especially in Massachusetts. I hope you will tune in next time. Thank you for joining the American Civil War podcast.